0: Broadcasting to
1: Harry Potter fans around the world for more than 11 years. Join Terrence Pinkston, Bailey Riddle, Luke Hogan, Gretchen Rush, and Alex Lohman as they take the wizarding world by storm. This is Hogwarts Radio. Stay classy, Hogwarts. This is Hogwarts Radio, episode 262 for June 19, 2020. Hogwarts Radio is the official podcast for Wizarding News and brought to you by Drawbridge Media, discussing all things Harry Potter, Fantastic Beasts, and the rest of the Wizarding World. Catch up with previous episodes of the podcast by visiting HogwartsRadio.com. Welcome to episode 262. I'm Terrence Kingston.
2: I'm Bailey Riddle. I'm Alex Bloman. And I'm Gretchen Rush.
3: Hogwarts Radio can be found anywhere you can get your podcasts online. It doesn't matter where you listen,
0: just be sure to click subscribe and you'll have a new episode as soon as it's released. Make sure you follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to get in on the fun with the other listeners and our fans of the series. Finally, join the Unfoundables, an exclusive
2: companion to our podcast. Get unfound today at patreon.com slash unfoundables.
1: For nearly 400 years, the Black community has lived under the umbrella of slavery, inequality, and injustice in the United States. Too many lives have been lost at the hands of police brutality Against the Black community. The names of Eric Gardner, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray, Rihanna Taylor, George Floyd, and many others have resonated with citizens of multiple municipalities across the world. Today, we are here to make a stand. We are here to protest. Enough is enough. We will not stand for this grave injustice any longer.
0: Before we get into our conversation today, for everyone's mental health and awareness, we just want to give a trigger warning for this episode. We're going to be talking about powerful language, content, a lot of the police brutality and violence against uh, Black citizens of the United States. So for those of you who are listening who may be in a particularly vulnerable place or not mentally and emotionally ready for this conversation, we want to let you know before we get started. Um, and when you're ready, please join us. It's a critical conversation that we should be having in the United States. but we just want to give everyone a heads up before we dive into this really powerful and difficult conversation.
1: So a lot of us are sitting at home watching the news a lot nowadays, consuming content across social media channels, and really watching what it feels like the world fall apart before our very eyes. A lot of confusion has happened in the past couple of weeks um, with what's been going on. Uh, But the purpose of today's episode is to educate um, and inform um, and discuss uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, Black Lives Matter was founded in 2013 in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murder. Black Lives Matter Foundation Incorporated is a global organization in the United States, the UK and Canada whose mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. By combating and countering acts of violence, creating space for black imagination and innovation, and centering black joy, we are winning immediate improvements in our lives, and that's taken directly from the Black Lives Matter website, blacklivesmatter.com. Guys, I don't know about you, but I'm seeing everything on the news, and I'm I'm a little confused um, as to what's happening. Now, I know that there was a murder that took place uh, that really set off a series of protests just this past month. I'm kind of wondering what, what, I'm hearing a lot about Black Lives Matter. I'm seeing a lot of the discussion about the facts of police brutality um, and seeing videos on social media that quite frankly, scare the living hell out of me. Let's talk about just kind of our, our, our reactions to what we've been seeing in the past two to three weeks.
0: So full disclosure, um, I think I've mentioned this before. I'm fairly confident I have, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. Um, I represent mainly teenagers, teenagers, Um, in foster care who more often than not end up in the criminal justice system. Um, So I will full disclosure say that that is the lens I'm coming from and that I do not come to this conversation without my biases. And I think having these conversations, it is critical for everyone to involve their personal, their professional biases, because we can't have a conversation without acknowledging where we come from. But that said, I have been working in communities with mainly black and brown kids and foster care. I maybe have like two or three kids on my caseload who are white. I don't predominantly work with white kids um, because that's poverty. That's foster care. That's a lot of what goes on. And so my reactions are kind of tainted because I feel like I've been watching this happen to kids and adults alike for a long time, working in the criminal justice system. And, I feel like America is starting to see a lot of what, not starting to see, but I think is in a interesting social like constriction to be forced to confront a lot of what is going on in American society. We don't have the ability to go out and kind of ignore the difficulties of our society. And so I think it's a reckoning. It's a powerful reckoning. I feel like we've had a couple of, I guess you could call them like racial springs, like we call like Arab Springs and a lot of movements that have happened politically. We've gotten close, but we haven't been to this moment where it's really forced to discourse It's uncomfortable, but it's necessary. I'm heartbroken, but I'm also kind of re-encouraged by a lot of my colleagues, my friends, who are finally standing up to have this conversation. And I can speak for a lot of kids that I've spoken to in the last couple of weeks um, who've been dealing with this. And they are encouraged by people speaking out and finally being angry about a lot of the life that they've lived. So I guess my personal bit here is that keep pushing, keep fighting, keep having these conversations, and if not for yourself, for a lot of kids who are looking up to you.
3: Yeah, I mean, that it's such a great point, Alex. These conversations, they are uncomfortable, and especially for like all of us on the panel, white people who go through life not having to worry about the things that people of color have to worry about on a daily basis. We are privileged, and it's not necessarily because We try to. It's just unfortunately a fact of the world we were born into. And these conversations are extremely uncomfortable for people like us. I know my my mom and I, recently we've been having so many conversations about Black Lives Matter and all of the the trans justice that's been going on in the world lately. And kind of just trying to, obviously she's my mom, she's from a different time period. And so she grew up in a different world and doesn't quite understand a lot of the, the terminology and the conversations that are going on in the world today. And so I think that having these conversations with people is broadening people's horizons and it is really enlightening them to the the struggle that the black and people of
1: color races have gone through their entire lives. So through these conversations that we're having with different individuals, could be family members, with friends, Alex, maybe in your case, clients, do we feel that there's more of an understanding about what's happening now or are people just, they're they hard-headed, they're not really willing to listen, uh, they're not willing to, you know, kind of learn to think differently?
2: I think for me, it's been a lot of conversations with people who I always knew, supported Black Lives Matter and, and cared about people, but it's kind of been a wake-up call. It's been, a, oh, I need to actually do something about this. Because like Bailey said, we as white people have so much privilege to ignore. Like all the names you read at the beginning, uh, a lot of those people, I was an adult when they were killed. And did I do anything Besides go, oh, that's awful. No, I didn't. And, you know, looking back at that, I feel like I am in the same position as a lot of other people where we're finally waking up and saying, we have to do something about this. This isn't a problem for black people to solve. This is a problem for white people to solve because we're the ones doing this. So I think the conversations I've been having are a lot of where are you donating? What books are you reading? Like what, what protests are you going to? Are you, are you demonstrating? Um, and it's just been a real wake up call to say we have to take action. We can't just be like, Oh, that sucks. I'm going to go back to my house and. Sit on my couch and watch Netflix.
1: Do we feel like we're in the midst of a fundamental shift in our society where people, the, these before it was, it, it was like okay, you know, this person got like killed, that sucks. There's a demonstration, there's protests about it, and then things kind of settled down um, a little bit. Do we feel that we're coming to the point in our society where you know we're not really standing for this any longer, and we're ha- we're having those serious conversations of what we can do to change and 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 reform some of the um, some of the the, the law enforcement uh, tactics and and departments that are used?
3: You know, I mean, it's it's so hard to tell when you're in the middle of it, just because it, with every one of these instances, people get out, they protest. It feels like maybe something is going to happen, and then it inevitably fizzles out, everyone goes back to their their daily lives. Something about this feels different. I think we've reached a boiling point and it, it, it's kind of like the perfect storm of everyone's at home. We're all watching the news to begin with due to COVID. And so there's just this influx of information that's hitting people. And I think that
0: I, I'm really hopeful that this might finally be the, the, the straw that does it. I think you're right, Bailey, that we are in a moment where people can't ignore, people can't hide because we are at home, we are glued to our news outlets. What I'm encouraged is not just news media and social media, I am encouraged by our legislatures, um, which. We can look to the executive branch. We can look to the courts, but our laws are made in Congress. And so if you really want to see boots on the ground change, you need to watch what's happening in Congress. And I'm seeing a lot of reforms proposed on qualified immunity, um, which essentially gives police officers um, who work under the executive branch certain legal privileges that make them immune from legal lawsuits for Doing certain things because it's in the course of their duty. And there's a fine line to kind of balance between what we want to hold police officers accountable for and opening up the floodgates. And so that's kind of where qualified immunity has tried to strike a balance. I've seen a lot of proposals about changing what is qualified immunity. What we will accept is tolerable. I've also seen just a lot of momentum in terms of state legislatures and what they will accept from their police departments as a standard practice. Again, coming from my criminal defense lens, I can tell you that there is a lot of discretion for law enforcement in terms of what they can and cannot do in terms of physical restraint. Um, Canine units, I cannot tell you how many of my juvenile clients have been bitten and mauled, not mauled, but bitten and severely scarred by canine units and kids running away from police, which that 's kind of a normal thing for a sixteen year old who 's being pursued by the cops theres there 's a lot of reform and change, and I am at least hopeful by those conversations because we haven 't had those before and to me as a lawyer, but also just as a a civically minded citizen. I'm encouraged because we can demonstrate, we can protest, but really, where it matters is kind of a synergy between our courts looking at these cases and our Congress saying, "Okay, we've had enough."
1: So this is where Black Lives Matter comes in, and really, it was started by a, a group of folks that just really weren't going to take anymore. It's grown to this exponential movement that um, has now taken shape and has many chapters worldwide now. But for for those that are confused about I guess the purpose of what Black Lives Matter is and what what they do, I would like for us to kind of just really talk about, you know, what they've been doing um, other than organizing protests or, you know, or things of that nature. Like what kind of action uh, is being taken?
0: So Black Lives Matter, while a core in what has been kind of apparent to the, the U.S. community and the international community has been the demonstrations and the protests. I think the mission behind Black Lives Matter is assessing a, a whole democratic society that is built upon systemic racism and forcing a conversation Enforcing forcing legislative and social change that tackles that systemic racism. I found a tweet the other day that was so brilliant. That was like, when you were talking about Black Lives Matter, there's a difference between systemic And systemic in terms of our society, a democratic society that we tout as land of the free, home for the brave, um, all men are created equal. All of this was inherently built upon a racial and classist society that suppressed communities of color to be relegated. And so, what we tout as, you know, American freedom and democracy is not so much freedom in its purest sense and what the black lives matter movement in some parts and the black lives matter movement is very nuanced and very complicated because the problem of racial discrimination is very nuanced and very complicated and i say that from a social justice perspective but also from a legal perspective i mean if you take the time to read what it takes to prove racial racial discrimination in the courts it's incredible. 9 times out of 10, I'd say like 9.999 times out of 10, you're not going to be successful in proving racial discrimination when it's apparent. It's so obvious to the layperson. But I think what Black Lives Matter is doing is trying to chip away at both the obvious, which is police brutality and the death of black predominantly male individuals in American society at the hands of law enforcement, but is also in tandem trying to tackle a lot of the systemic problems that we are having in terms of you know, economic advantages, housing, health care, predominantly our kids in foster care are black or persons of color, black or brown, because of cultural and racial discrimination. There's a lot. And I have to applaud the Black Lives Matter movement because they are taking on a lot, not just police brutality. I think that's the forefront and that's the forefront of the conversation, but they're tackling quite a bit.
1: Alex, I want to ask you, this may be a loaded question, but how do you tackle or how do we as a society start to tackle systemic racism?
0: We start here we start by having the uncomfortable conversations. I think we also start by, and this is going to sound cliche, but we start by educating ourselves. We start by acknowledging the disparate impact of employment, of housing, of all these different things between myself as a white woman and a young black woman who's the mother of two kids. And we start acknowledging our, our own stereotypes. And in full candor, you know, I grew up in a very conservative portion of Southern California. I don't know how I turned out the way I turned out, but my environment around me didn't really lead me to the career path I'm on right now. But I really didn't confront these issues until I went to law school. And in law school, I took a lot of classes that forced me to confront my bias and forced me to acknowledge what I could do to improve my community. I think that's part of it. I think it's also each of us has something that's incredibly personal to us, whether it, you know, our friend Tyler at Protego Foundation is very passionate about animal rights. I am a criminal justice lawyer focusing on kids, and I'm super passionate about kids and their rights under the law we all have these different passions that fuel into equality and the black lives matter movement. So to anyone who's listening, I challenge you to find your passion and just kind of go down the rabbit hole of how that ties into racial equality. And if that's your, your buy-in to informing yourself 110% do it. Um, I think that's where we start is what's our personal stake and how do we contribute to that conversation?
1: So it's no secret what we're seeing on the news right now uh, about police brutality with protesters as well, and not to take any light away from what's been happening to the black community, because this is just a, you know, a hard, uh, I mean, a sliver of what, you know, the black community has gone through uh, over the past 400 years. I saw a tweet today that said black people and it said, I'm tired. And then white people say, yeah, it's been a rough three weeks for us or something like that. And that tweet kind of like got the gears in my head turning like, yeah, these people are tired of fighting for this injustice. And it's, it's a, it feels like they shouldn't have to, you know, this is something that, that you shouldn't have to fight for. It should just be a God given right for you to be able to live your life peacefully to exist um to you know be able to do what you want and you know that's something that we as as a a white panel have you know been able to experience all of our lives so I, i don't really feel like we can you know say that we've been discriminated against or anything like that Uh, but I do want to ask uh, have we witnessed police brutality happen um, in person I mean is there is there a story that anybody has in their community where they've witnessed uh, something happen or you've uh, heard of one of your friends being brutalized by the police is it I mean, I just kind of want to, the the purpose of this is I want to bring it home because it it does affect everybody. Um, Of course, nowhere near what has been experienced by the Black community, but police brutality in general.
2: Well, I'd love to challenge that thought, Terrence, because uh, my my answer is obviously no. And I'm going to guess that the rest of the panel's answer is no, although I I can't speak for everyone. But um, I agree with you that it does affect everybody in the sense that We all should be passionate about this and wanting to make changes, whether we are personally affected by it or not. I'm not personally affected by it. And that's why at 28 years old, I'm finally doing something about it. Feels like a real late start, you know? So it's like we have to take it personally because we have to care about other people and we have to want to live in a better world, you know? I doubt there are many Americans out there. Well, that's not true. I'm sure there are plenty of Americans out there who think that America's great and awesome, but I'm, I'm sad to live in a country like this. It does not make me feel good to see things like this happen. And even though it's not affecting me on a personal level, it affects me on a societal level on a, you know, a worldwide level, I feel for everyone in our country and I want to do something about it. So I think you're right that we do need to take it personally. But if we've seen police brutality or not, it doesn't change the fact that it exists at astonishing rates. Yeah,
3: I mean, like Gretchen said, I have never witnessed it myself, but everyone, I don't care who you are, you, you work with someone, you're friends with someone, you go to the gym with someone, you know someone who has experienced this and whose life has been altered by police brutality, whether you know it or not, they might not feel comfortable talking with you, sharing it. I know. Um, once all of the, the the protests for George Floyd started, that a lot of my coworkers started sending around all staff emails about, you know, it's about time. And this is my experience with it. And you know, obviously, they don't talk about it often, but they want us to know now that the world is taking a closer look, and we're finally examining this injustice in the world. And it was really hard to read some of their emails and just to to see what they go through on a daily basis and how they feel. Um, So I think that regardless of whether or not it's ever affected you personally, um, you do know someone who's gone through it. And we all need to work to make a world
0: where you don't have to be afraid to just live your life. A hundred percent. Bailey, I absolutely love the notion that you pose that it's, even if it hasn't directly affected you, you know, someone, you hundred percent know someone. Um, I have never witnessed it firsthand. What I have witnessed is its implications and its ramifications. I cannot tell you how many trials I have sat through With juveniles, let's, you know, let's remove adults. Let's remove whether you think it was right or wrong. Let's talk about kids for a second. Kids, black kids are still subject to the same brutality and mercilessness as adults are. That I can tell you, I have seen, I have seen kids who, you know, so here in Florida, a kid gets arrested, they have a right to appear before a judge within 24 hours. So I will see the kid the next day, nine times out of 10, I will see the kid in the holding cell in a courtroom, um, which you know sucks for kids. It really shouldn't be that way, but it is. Um, and if they have been subject to police brutality, I see it the next day. I see the dog bites. I see kids who have been wailed on In holding centers by detention staff because kids are mouthing off, kids are spitting. And yes, kids spit, kids do stupid stuff, but does it mean you throw them to the ground? No. You know, I can tell you one of my former clients who. And I talk about my clients and I use the term clients, but if you know me and you know my kids, it is, it's more than clients. I'm a big sister. I'm a mentor. I'm a friend. I, my kids are my life. I love them dearly. And one of my kids who's particularly close to me, um, I knew she was going to protest. I knew it. And so I called her the day before the protest. And I was like, look, hon, you are a black teenager. Um, in America, you and I need to have some conversations about what will happen at a protest. And I had seen the brutality in DC. I'd seen a lot going on. And so I kind of had to admonish her about like, okay, if the police give you instructions, you have to follow them. If things go south, you need to get out. Without going into too much detail, that young woman was not only arrested, she had some physical violence exerted against her. She is 16. She's a tough cookie. She does not cry. And she called me the next day and she cried about what had happened to her. And I think that it's it's not against me. I haven't witnessed it personally, but I've seen it through the eyes of parents and kids alike involved in the welfare system. And I can tell you that these people don't deserve it. And I saw a really great thing on social media today that was essentially like, regardless of guilt or not, you don't deserve to die. You don't deserve to be beaten. And that is true for states who exercise the death penalty. That's... Subject to very serious, certain punishable by life or death capital offenses. And that's for court to decide, not for law enforcement to decide.
1: Two things that I've never really shared with anybody. um, And I'm going to share them with everybody today because I feel like it's important to bring up. um, Number one, um, whenever I was uh, in Chicago in 2012, um, and I believe it was 2012, and um, I was visiting a couple of friends up there. Um, And for those of you that know me, I love Chicago. I I would I would live up there if I could. Um, I I remember I was on Michigan Avenue. Um, I was south of the river um, and I knew that there were Occupy protests happening. Um, So I I wanted to kind of witness this uh, for myself. Um, So I was actually in the middle as these protesters. Um, came down the line. Of course, there's, there's police in um, full, their full garb with the, you know, the face shields and the, the, their, um, their actual shields and then batons and things like that. And then there were a lot of police, more police than I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, And they were on horses and things like that. Um, And I guess they were kind of there just to make sure things didn't get out of hand. I don't know. I didn't understand what was going on at the time. Um, I didn't understand a lot about the movement or anything like that. I just knew that they were protesting. So I wanted to document it for you know, myself just to kind of say, hey, you know, I've, this is the era that I live in now. I remember getting scared um, with these protesters and wanting to get north of the river, which there was a line of police officers Um, And so they left a gap like in between themselves and I'm trying to get away. And I duck in between the police officers. Um, I got past the police officers, but uh, didn't get far. (laughs) They grabbed me and they threw me back. Um, and I landed on my back um, and hit my head on the cement. Um, and then I got up and they were yelling at me um, and telling me, uh, was I in the sauce? Am I crazy? Um, and things like that. And That was the first time that I had um, experienced anything like that in, in my life, as far as like a, a, a brutal response from a law enforcement officer um, of, of that particular uh type of nature i didn't think i was doing anything wrong apparently the police officers thought i did um my the second thing that i really want to share um is uh in in the mid in, in 2010 2009 2008 i at this point i don't i don't remember the date uh but i remember vividly what what had happened i had a um, had a mental health episode, um, is what I'll call it. Um and the the police were called, um, and and you know, the the EMS was called and fire trucks were called and all that other stuff. So of course everybody's making a lot of noise coming down for this mental health episode from um this 20-something year old young man. Um I was instead of having a mental health professional there, which I should have, um I was handcuffed. I was thrown in the back of a police cruiser. Um, I was thrown in the back of a police cruiser. Um, and I was taken to a, um, hospital. Um, and instead of being, you know, understanding, um, with that, it was just, um, you know, it was, it was something that I had never experienced up until that point in my life. Um, you know, but I feel like it could have been handled differently by by the police officer, um, and it was um, it was traumatic. It was it was very hard to go through because you're always taught that the police are there to protect and serve, and you know it, it wasn't it wasn't in any of those cases, uh, at least what I had experienced. It was um, something that I'll never forget, and why this particular uh, movement is personal for me. And that was a very, very hard thing to say.
0: <laughs> you know, like, that's huge. Um, so just one, I kind of want to thank you. Like, it's hard to talk about our interactions with law enforcement, positive or negative. It is hard to talk about mental health. It is hard to talk about everything that you just openly shared. Um, you know, a lot of my clients have mental health trauma because of their life and their circumstances. And a lot of them have gone through the same experience you just described. Instead of a mental health professional responding to someone in crisis and someone in need, we have law enforcement who are not trained to handle these situations and who are trained to execute law and order, law and order and mental health do not belong in the same sentence. And it kind of goes into our conversation about defunding the police, which has been a huge topic in the media right now. But I think it adequately illustrates where our society can improve and what are the essential functions of law enforcement and what we need to truly invest in in our communities. And it's not easy and you know, we need more voices willing to talk about their experiences. I was trained as a public defender in Chicago. I was living in Chicago in 2012. I can tell you that law enforcement in Chicago has a very liberal idea of what protect and serve means. So I can, what you're describing to me, A, is horrifying, but B, doesn't shock me by what I know about the Chicago Police Department. And it, it sucks that that's my interpretation of a very traumatic experience for you but I think for all of our listeners who are listening and wondering how this hits home, um, you said it best. And just, I do I'm, I'm in awe and you know, thanks for speaking your truth, man. It's hard, but I really appreciate it.
1: Uh, so I, I want to talk about what, what does reform look like? Um, obviously, defend, uh, defunding police departments—that's a popular discussion topic right now. And, and let's be real: police reform is is needed. It's it's something that we desperately need as a society in order to move forward. It's something that cannot happen as a quick fix, though. Um, this is something that can't be a bill that's fast tracked through Congress. Uh, discussions have to have to happen. Um, and they have to happen at the local level, with city councils and governments, and most importantly, the people. If we if we defund or dissolve the police departments, that doesn't mean crime stops. You know, the the world just doesn't stop because we say, oh, we're not going to give the police any money to to do what they need to do anymore. So I'm kind of curious to the panel, what what does reform of law enforcement look like?
3: I think that they need to law enforcement needs to be less. I don't don't want to say less proactive because stopping terrorism is obviously a huge thing, but just less out looking for crime to happen. They need to solve the crimes that are happening. It's not something of, well, yes, obviously crime should be prevented, but in a way that's not biased, that's not just because you're a past offender doesn't necessarily mean that you are automatically a criminal for the rest of your life. People change. And I think that's something that our our law enforcement really doesn't take into account. Anyone is capable of committing a crime regardless of their past. And it just it needs to be less physical about the the way the actions that law enforcement take.
1: What do future institutions look like at this point that we can see? I mean, we have, there's been a lot of talk about mental health professionals in the place of law enforcement officers, which could definitely have been needed um, at a lot of points in, in history um, and in recent history as well. I mean, do you get, uh, you know, do do police officers become social, uh, like public defenders or social uh, justice defender, or you know what what does all of it look like?
0: So I think what it looks like, and this is a common misconception that I've seen with people responding to the notion of reform and defunding the police. Reform and defunding is not eradicating; it is essentially financially stripping down law enforcement to perform its essential functions um I kind of like to think of it as putting money where your mouth is. So instead, so for example, um, I took a, a a very critical look at my home, well, not my hometown, but where I'm living in West Palm Beach, Florida. I took a look at our city budget and I realized that half of our entire city budget goes to law enforcement, which is appalling to me appalling, not because I don't think law enforcement individuals are deserving of living wages and all of that. I think what is appalling to me is that 50% of our entire city budget goes to law enforcement and military grade weaponry and a lot of just unacceptable police tactics where I've got kids with serious mental health issues that I have to fight to the nail in a courtroom to get adequate mental health treatment because we don't have the funding because the state doesn't want to spend the money on those issues. Um, and so to me, reform does look like structural change in the law and how we view qualified immunity. Like I talked about before, how we qualify or how we review, um, justified use of force, stand your ground, which is applicable definitely in the state of Florida. might be applicable in the state of Texas, but it looks like divesting a ton of money that goes into essentially military-grade contracts with local law enforcement and reinvesting that money into communities. Looking at a adequate housing, section eight housing, putting more money into that. God, there are so many wait lists for people to get adequate housing. Health care oh, I wish my kids had health care. I wish their parents had health care. It looks like mental health care. It looks like, you know, Terrence, to your point, do we make law enforcement social workers? No, I don't think so. I think they should have some basic training. Don't get me wrong. But I think what it does look like is when a call comes in for a mental health crisis or a domestic violence dispute it's not just a law enforcement officer responding. The funding then also allows for a social worker, allows for a crisis counselor to come out hand-in-hand with law enforcement to be able to de-escalate because they've had years of training to do so, and it doesn't result in someone being handcuffed when maybe they just need simple de-escalation.
2: And Going off what Alex said, I have clients in my area who can't find mental health services we our hospital lost a bunch of funding they had to close things down and one of the things to go was their their mental health facility and a local organization said they would pick it up and they made all these claims and then we just found out six months later that they're not doing it so my kids don't have therapy can't get therapy thankfully we have a mobile crisis through our organization that they can call so they can talk to a crisis counselor when they're in a crisis, but a lot of people don't have access to mobile crisis like that. So they do call the police and and hope that they're going to get someone qualified. And it's awful that things like what happened to you, Terrence happen because the police are not qualified for that. And I think that really is the thing that people who are against the defund the police movement are not understanding. No one's saying that we want police officers to not have jobs or that we. Don't agree with the idea of the police. Some people might want to abolish the whole thing, but the majority of people are saying it's a ludicrous amount of money that goes to this position that really is just a job. And we should be taking as much money and putting it in other jobs. Teachers deserve more money. Social workers deserve more money. Mental health deserves more money. Like we just need to reallocate those funds. And so that's what people need to understand about this whole concept.
1: And I think what scares a lot of people is that this sounds like a proposed radical change i mean you're you're essentially taking the police department you're shrinking it and you're not really i mean you're providing these additional services and it's something that people are they 're uncomfortable if they 're not used to it um, you know they 're used to whenever they call nine one one getting a dispatch to get a police officer out there or you know um, wanting to get a, a police officer to help file a report for a break in or something like that um, you know people i think it's it 's just that people are really not comfortable with the idea of how long this change um, is going to take because guys, this radical change and it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen within one to two years. But, you know, as we start to, you know, pump this money out of the police departments and into these social programs, people are going to start seeing the changes. But, you know, it's it's not anything that can happen like within, you know, a week or two. This journey is going to take years to happen.
3: Yeah. And, you know, people are afraid that those services you mentioned aren't going to happen if we Defund the police, but that's not the case. There's still going to be someone to help you with filing your break in report. There's still going to be someone to answer your 911 call and get you that emergency care that you need. It just might not be the police responding to you. You know, Terrence, in your case, obviously it was a, a mental health break. You didn't need the police to show up. You needed a mental health professional. And really, that's what it boils down to Is we're, we are proposing that money be taken away from the police to help fund these programs that in the long term are going to decrease the need for police, not in the sense of, yes, police are still going to be needed, but the, you know, with more mental health care and more funding for homeless and all of these things will decrease the number of crimes that are happening. I work with the homeless population and I cannot tell you how many of the homeless population is mentally ill. It's not that they don't want the the help or the care, it's that they aren't in a mental state to be ready to move into housing yet. And so if you provide the care and the resources that they actually need, then you're helping them to stay out of this criminal justice system that basically it does wrong by everyone.
1: How do we get to a point to where we're trying to convince the general public of saying, you know what, we have to pull back on police funding. We have to pull back because we have to pump it into these additional programs. Whenever, let's say, you know, an older relative of mine is like, no, because I want my money, my hard-earned tax dollars to go to this particular section of the, you know, of the government. I want my money to go to the police, not a health professional, not a a mental health, uh, you know, security professional or or something like that. Like, how do we, how do we start to change that mindset?
2: What I think is kind of amazing is that we actually don't really have to, because it kind of doesn't matter. Like Minneapolis has already decided that they're disbanding the city's police force. Like they didn't need to take a vote on that. Like they didn't need to garner opinions. They just decided to do it and now they're doing it. So what's kind of great about that is, you know, there will be those people, like you're saying, there will be people who say, I've always had the police and they've always protected me and I want my money to go to them. And it's kind of like, sorry, grandpa, your money's gonna go wherever it goes. Like you need to get over it. And as time goes on, people will adjust to that. And I'm encouraged by the voices that I hear of people our generation, because I think that things will change if we keep changing them.
3: Yeah, it's our responsibility to to show people the older generations that just because it's not what you've always known, it doesn't mean that it's bad. There, there's research and there there are numbers behind putting money into other services that then decrease the need for law enforcement. And I think that just getting the information out there and doing as much as we can to educate people is really what's going to help make this transition happen.
0: So here's the cynical answer. (laughs) I 100% agree with Gretchen and Bailey. My job on a daily basis is to convince a judge that incarceration or any type of police-based detention is not good for kids, for adults, whatever it may be, Um, whomever the person should be is what I should say. And I have learned over the years that I can make all of the equality and the systemic change arguments that I want. But the bottom line comes down to dollar and cents. Terrence, you phrased it as, you know, a relative, a friend, whomever might want to invest their money in institutions that they are comfortable with and they believe. So over the years, I have done a lot of research on how much money it takes to incarcerate an individual, juvenile or adult, um, to sentence them to either a juvenile prison term. We call them camp in California. We call it commitment in Florida or a prison sentence for an adult. And I will tell you, it is at least two times more expensive to incarcerate under the punishment model than it is to divest that funding and then reinvest that money into adequate mental health institutions. I worked with a young man who had severe mental health issues, who literally, (laughs) he grew up in foster care. So I'll I'll give that as a backdrop, but he got arrested for a misdemeanor theft charge. I don't quite know, I can't remember what the exact charge was because he stole a $2 ice cream cone from a 7-Eleven. The cost to prosecute that case, the cost to resolve it was immensely greater than what it would have been to realize that that client had paranoid schizophrenia was not in his right mind, was not medicated and he needed adequate mental health treatment. And I kid you not, it took myself and a colleague over nine months to litigate to get him adequate mental health treatment. And lo and behold, he's had it and he has been great. Um, he hasn't had any more issues with law enforcement. He has a job. He's a productive member of society. And that is more cost-benefit to more of a cost benefit to society than it is to lock him up for like a $2 ice cream cone. And I'm not saying that every person who comes into contact with law enforcement is a $2 ice cream cone, right? We have grades of crimes because people do serious things and less serious things and how we perceive them. But I'm telling you the bottom line is that for those cases that are not, you know, Ted Bundy, crazy acts, murderer status, it is going to be more cost-benefited to your wallet as a taxpayer and to society in a moral and ethical way if we invest in those resources and not in the crime and
1: punishment model. So I want to get back to the, um, I guess, kind of the educational portion of Black Lives Matter here. We've been seeing all over social media, and I'm sure we see it you know, in the news and in our communities. What is the trouble? with the statement, all lives matter, or blue lives matter, or white lives matter? What issues do, why is that such a big issue?
3: You know, it's funny you ask that, Terrence, because I've had a few family members who in our discussion have said, well, y- yes, Black lives matter, but don't all lives matter? And well, yes, all lives do matter, but the fact of the matter is, all lives aren't being targeted. All lives are not dying at the hands of police, in the hands of people in the world because they're living it's the black people black lives that are being targeted because of the color of their skin and their lives are in danger just for living and that is why black lives matter because black lives are in danger
2: yeah it seems a lot more straightforward to us than it is I guess to other people it's still crazy to me that it gets questioned so much but my mom who is a pastor she posted Black Lives Matter and someone commented and said I don't think you should be taking a stance which first of all is ridiculous she can't take a stance on her own Facebook um, and she said you're going to offend believers meaning Christians who think that all lives matter and my mom commented and she just reshared something that someone else had said and it was a story from the Bible about um, fly. Defy- of sheep um the parable about jesus and the 99 sheep and the one is wandered away and so jesus went and found the one sheep and the idea is that he's not neglecting the 99 sheep he's finding the one that needs to belong in the fold he's getting the one back who's in danger and so the idea that well everyone matters no one's saying you don't matter i don't know why people are taking it so personally no one's saying you don't matter we're saying Systemically and historically, other people have not mattered. They've had less opportunities. They have had less chances for success. And we're trying to, just like we talked about last week with trans rights, we're trying to give these people a place at the table. We're trying to make space for people. And if you can't make space for them because you're saying, my life's important, then you need to do exactly what Alex said and educate yourself. You need to understand why you're getting so defensive. You need to understand. Why you can't recognize that all human beings deserve the same rights that you inherently have and have
1: always had? Let's kind of broaden it here. Um, what can we've talked about? What um, individuals um, can kind of uh, can do to kind of educate themselves? But what what do companies need to do to accept social responsibility?
0: It's a loaded question. But it's a necessary one. And one of the things that I was super encouraged by was um, one of the co founders of Reddit, um, a whole Alexis. I'm forgetting his last name. Oh, um, thank you. Um, I love that I get to refer to him as um, Serena Williams' husband because um, it's always the reverse. But um, uh, he stepped down from the board of Reddit as a white man and said look i realize that for my daughter to grow up in an acceptable and kind of model forward world the example needs to start with me um and so he stepped down and he said you know i want my place to be uh replaced <laughs> I'm really good with my synonyms today, um, but with a a black individual, a brown individual, a person of color because this board lacks diversity um, and I think that's huge. I think our companies um to kind of go to the systemic and not the systematically but the systemic portion of this conversation, companies need to assess a internally what diversity looks like within their co- within their companies, and they need to have critical conversations. I mean, for example, I went to a private law school. I went to Northwestern Law and Northwestern is having a huge conversation right now about its lack of diversity in a top 10 law school Um, and hiring a consultant to try and implement that change. I also think companies need to assess where they're getting their resources, their materials. I've seen a lot of postings on Instagram and social media about companies that derive their employment from either prison labor or very cheap labor, labor, outsourced labor that preys upon communities of color. And I think that's important too, because all of a sudden the public is starting to become aware of where their products are coming from and realizing I don't want to support this. And the only way you're going to listen to me is if I stop spending my money on your product. So I think it's going to kind of take a look at globalization and it's going to take a look at where our labor comes from and realizing, okay, society is kind of having this awakening of what we want our products to look like at home. It's not just about dollars and cents, although it is to some people, but for this conversation, you know, it's not just about where I can get the cheapest bang for your buck. I also want to make sure that I'm not encouraging a system that systematically suppresses black individuals, brown individuals, people of color. You know, I, I think that's where it starts. It starts internally with structure and it starts with where we're getting our products. So in honor of George Floyd, um, in remembrance of his life and, the the amount of time it took to take an individual's life at the hands of police brutality and in an effort to stand with the black lives matter movement to our black listeners to black harry potter fans to everyone out there who is hurting and sympathizing um we want to demonstrate we want to show our support for the movement And we hope that you will join us in the next eight minute and 46 seconds of silence in remembrance of George George Floyd. And um, honestly, in Hogwarts Radio, continued commitment to diversity, to the promotion of Black Lives Matter, and to hopefully moving our Harry Potter conversations and our democratic conversations forward in a progressive and meaningful way. So, uh here we go eight minutes and 46 seconds ladies and gentlemen
1: Thank you so much to everybody for demonstrating with us today um, in support of what's been going on in the United States and thank you to the world for you know demonstrating with us as well um, and and I'm not just referring to us at Hogwarts radio but I'm referring to us as a society stepping back and saying this isn't right and we need change And that will wrap up today's episode. Once again, I'm Terrence Pinkston. I'm Bailey Riddle. I'm Alex Lohman. And I'm Gretchen Rush. And we'll see you next time for episode 263. Bye-bye.
0: That was bloody brilliant.
1: Cardswaller.